My name is Ash, and I am a slave. Close as I can figure it, the year is 1300 AD, and I'm being dragged to my death. Into the pit without bloodthirsty Sandamore! All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. This is my boomstick! Let's talk about how I get back home. Only the Necronomicon has the power. Within its pages are passages that can send you back to your time. Only you, the promised one, can quest for it. Groovy. When thou retrievest the book from its cradle, you must recite the word Platu Verata Nictu. If I get that book, you send me back. You shall never retrieve the Necronomicon. You'll die in the graveyard before you get it. Platu Verata when thou misspoke the words, the army of the dead awoke. I say we stay here and fight it out. Who's with me? It's uh, both very hilarious as well as super scary and has a lot of like pretty crazy adventure in it and is one of, I think, most creative uh, movies to come out of the 90s. Uh, and uh, it's personally been very inspiring to me, uh, you know, uh, growing up and seeing this movie when I was probably uh, uh, seven or eight for the first time. And it, it really uh, uh, left a lot of uh, kind of lasting memories and, and kind of um, encouragement that, oh, you can really do that in a, in a film. And uh and I think it's, uh, you know, kind of stood the test of time and is really what I consider the quintessential midnight movie. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm your host, Jinx, and that was Tyler McIntyre talking about Sam Raimi's 1992 horror comedy classic, Army of Darkness. Mr. McIntyre is a writer and director known for the films Patchwork and Tragedy Girls. Mr. McIntyre, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, as with every episode, I'll start out by asking, out of any horror movie you might have chosen to discuss, any at all, why go with Army of Darkness? Uh, well, I mean, it, it had probably, like, this movie's had uh, probably the most uh, influence on on me, uh, like, in terms of uh, making filmmaking kind of seem fun. Uh, and so, um, you know, like, it was one of the early uh, uh, films where uh, you watched it and, and were kind of like, oh, like, the person who made this, uh, had a point of view, you know, like, and, and they kind of, um, uh, you know, and it was a little bit of a fringe thing. Like it wasn't, uh, like I remember seeing that poster in, in a video store and being like, I need to rent that. Like, obviously it got the chainsaw for hand, like, you know, like what, where did I sign up? And, um, and then it, it, realizing it was rated R and like being crushed <laughs> by that, uh, by that notion. And then trying to, you know, figure out ways to kind of like, uh, you know, uh, maneuver myself politically so that I could, I could check it out. And then once, once I finally got to see it, it was, uh, you know, kind of next level uh, entertaining. Yeah, and it's uh, now you mentioned you were around seven or eight when you first caught it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I, it probably would would have been nineteen ninety two when it came out. Gotcha. Okay, I you know it's funny. I remember watching the movie for the first time, not when it came out. You know, I I wouldn't discover it until years later. I uh, <clears throat> I didn't become a massive horror fan until my teens. You know, sometime in the mid nineties and. Uh, when I did, I sort of hit all the classics and the biggest franchises first. But, uh, you know, 
that was one franchise that I was sort of aware of, but I hadn't seen. And I could never find any of the Evil Dead movies. None of my local video stores carried them. And uh, if younger listeners could possibly imagine this, I wasn't even able to stream the film. You know, back then, that wasn't a that wasn't a thing. It wasn't possible to just order up the Blu-ray. Anchor Bay hadn't even put out the clamshell VHS of the first film by that point. So uh, it, uh, it wasn't until I came home. I remember this clearly. It wasn't until I came home from taking the ACT. My brain was mush. And I just sat down and I started channel flipping and uh, wound up stopping on the scene with Bruce Campbell fighting about a dozen tiny Bruce Campbells. And I couldn't help but laugh my ass off at that. And I watched it all the way till the end, rented the VHS, watched it again, and wondered where the hell all the tiny ashes went. And uh, yeah, then eventually made my way through the franchise backwards. I caught Evil Dead 2 next and then finally Evil Dead. But, uh, you know, I... <laughs> it, I think I appreciated the movie so much more that I watched it later in my fandom, as it were, probably not until I was 17 or 18, that uh, I was able to pick up on a lot of the little nods that Raimi throws in, you know, uh, to, you know, all the horror movies in the past and how he sort of subverts them and has fun with them and uh, pokes fun at them, as it were. And uh, I don't know, it's one of my favorite franchises, I think, as a result, because of the arc that each one of those early movies takes. You know, with uh, with Evil Dead, we have a straight horror movie. With Evil Dead 2, we have kind of a horror movie and kind of a comedy blended together. And then by the time we get to Army of Darkness, it's a complete farce. And uh, I don't know, obviously you picked Army of Darkness for this chat, but is that your favorite one in the trilogy? Or how how does it sort of rank with the other two? Or even, I guess, the the... The continued franchise at this point, now that we've had kind of a reboot or remake and a uh, television series extension, too. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely saw Army of Darkness first um, and then but I would say Evil Dead 2 is kind of my favorite. Like, I think that one um, there's some, uh, you know, like I think a lot of the brilliance of Army of Darkness really started in Evil Dead 2 and you can kind of see that. But there's something about it being like as like, I mean, Evil Dead 1 is one of the most lo-fi uh, you know, kind of things that you consider in a contemporary classic. And then in Evil Dead 2 is still kind of like they have some resources and they're still trying to figure it out, but it's just like 100% creative, like, innovation. And then, um, whereas, uh, like, Army of Darkness is a straight-up studio movie, you know, like, and this got, like, a big uh, theatrical release and, like, you know, like, they were trying to push it into the mainstream and we just weren't ready. Yeah, so it, it was a bit interesting to discover this trilogy in reverse uh and so uh or like almost in reverse uh because i saw the first one uh or the army of darkness when i was probably seven or eight but then uh when i became a teenager and kind of got into uh horror movies in a more um direct way and then discovering evil dead and being like oh this is kind of there's something familiar about this and then not quite putting it together until i watched evil dead 2 and being like holy shit like this is like you know like my little you know teenage mind was was blown and realizing that like this is all part of the same thing and um and uh and uh you know I, I, like that part of the discovery is kind of interesting and you you touched on something that makes this uh, another thing that kind of makes this a little bit special is, is like the idea that there's like you know the, both the original ending and then like the a more common like theatrical ending uh and and then how they're kind of like uh you know like a, the um how there was one ending for the movie for a long time and that cut is very tight and then there's like a longer version that's uh you know that has like a like a very different ending that that Sam Raimi actually prefers apparently um and uh and kind of seeing like where people like filmmakers especially like where they stand on that um you know cuz I'm cuz uh the the alternate ending was quite widely circulated uh you know like with like the bootleg edition and a couple of special edition DVDs and stuff like that um so some so it's like often people have have only ever seen one or the other ending or or those additional scenes like the little uh, little ash like you were mentioning 
Yeah, absolutely. And I can I ask, which uh, now that you brought up the ending, uh, I, I I always ask every fan this: which ending do you prefer and why? Oh, I definitely prefer the original ending. I, I, I like the movie tighter. Like, like I, I like it, uh, you know, and it's and it's like a eighty some minute version. When you say original, uh, the uh, the uh, yeah, the, sorry, the uh, I mean the the theatrical version in the supermarket. Yeah, same here. Uh, yeah, even though that's like I guess not well, obviously not the original ending, but the um uh yeah, I definitely prefer uh you know the eighty one minute version uh, with that ending. And part of it is because like. Um, you know, like I know, like it, it almost reeks of like, like, like it's almost sarcastically made, you know what I mean? Like he's just like, like it's, it's sort of like, you want an upbeat ending? I'll show you an upbeat ending. Like there's it like drips with like satire, you know? And there's something about that that's so biting that I think is so funny. Um, and, and I, I prefer that like F you mentality to it, um, than the actual one, which is I think clever, but, but not nearly as satisfying. Yeah, I agree. And plus, I I don't think that the original and well, the, uh, the I guess the director's ending, the uh, the downbeat ending, as it were, to me, it doesn't quite fit with the tone of the film because I I guess, you know, if you look at the trilogy, in a way, I I understand where he was going because you know every movie ends with Ash losing, in some way. You know, the the end of the first movie, of course, he uh, he he's the last man standing, but then eventually the force, you know carries him out into the woods and then at the end of the second movie we think he's won and uh then he gets carried into a portal and transported back in time and you know he's he's lost again and then when you get to the third movie i mean i guess it would make sense in a way that you know he he would lose again he would take one drop too many he would wind up in an apocalyptic future and yet you know the first movie is a horror film so of course we need that gotcha ending and the the end of the second movie, which was a horror comedy and much lighter, I mean, it is a downbeat ending for Ash, but it's fun, you know? When you get to Army of Darkness, I mean, it's just playful and fun and never really scary and never grim uh, all the way throughout. So to have him losing at the very end, I mean, maybe it's in keeping with the previous movies, but I don't know. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel tonally of one piece with everything that's come before. And I think the uh, the theatrical ending, the one with... Uh, you know, all the hijinks in the supermarket and him sort of having his great hero's moment in the final, you know, a couple of seconds of the movie. That, to me, feels more honest or at least uh, much more of a natural extension of the movie that we've just seen. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I actually prefer that. Although, I will say, and uh, I, I know you mentioned you prefer the uh, the entire cut there, the tighter cut of the film. I To me, the ideal cut of that movie is his director's cut with the supermarket ending. And I know that th that cut doesn't exist, but in my mind, that would be perfect for me. But uh, because I love all the other little bits and bobs all the way throughout the rest of the film. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm glad we agree, at least on the ending. That's very cool because I think it is so much fun. Yeah, totally. And, and I actually think they took out a lot of like the horror. It's like, you can tell that there's like pretty, pretty uh, aggressive scissor hands going on in the movie. But, but I mean, most of those things, uh, I mean, I used to be an editor for, for a while. So I tend to kind of like things that are, pretty efficient and and that 81 minute movie just goes you know it does it does it moves like a bat out of hell and you know it's funny watching i did uh re-watch the director's cut for this chat you know i'm familiar with both i mean i've seen them both cuts of the movie i mean dozens of times at this point in my life it's crazy but uh one thing i guess sort of slipped me by or i never really paid much attention to I there is this one creepy moment in the movie when uh Badash has Sheila in his possession just before she's turned and I had completely forgotten the moment where he sort of strips her nude to the waist and 
is sort of forcing himself on her, you know, with that like creepy, mm. like gross kiss. Yeah. And then, you know, there's even, you know, this far shot of a topless girl being paraded around in front of them, you know, by the deadite saying, we've yeah, got some stop. plans for you, you know, girly or something <laughs> like that. And it's like, holy shit, how did I forget that this happened and this director has gotten, I don't, you know, in a movie that's otherwise meant to be kind of fun, I, I don't, I can't imagine that sequence would make it in, in a film like that today. And I mean, hell, it didn't back then either, apparently. But uh, it was just kind of a jaw dropper for a moment. I don't know how it escaped my attention before this viewing, but uh, but yikes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think like, I mean, this movie is 92, right? But like, so things were starting to change a little bit, like in terms of like, uh, there's a lot of like, you know, men forcing themselves on women in classic Hollywood and especially like in kind of like, you know, uh, medieval and sword and sandal type movies. Like you ever see like Death Stalker, you know, like that movie's like like wall to wall, like like uh, you know guys, uh, you know, uh, uh, practically raping people. I just like, rewatched Beastmaster for the first time oh, in <laughs> ages, and you know I had always remembered this as this fun sort of like great kids movie, and uh, I just uh, started reading that uh, Don Coscarelli book True Indie, and there are all of those uh, chapters about the making of the movie, all of which are heartbreaking, uh, but. Um, God, I I had completely forgotten the moment in that when he first meets uh, Kiri, and it's like he's sort of like, yeah, he's doing the same thing. He's like forcing himself on her, kissing her, whatever. Now, what's cool about Beastmaster is she immediately like kicks his legs out from under him and puts him on his back. But still, the fact that it happened in the first place is in a movie that's otherwise kind of a kids flick with you know a wholesome hero at the center. It's still it's kind of surprising. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and there's, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that we've kind of, you know, gradually gone away from that, or at least uh, the idea of like, you know, in, in like a Game of Thrones, Thrones type context that it's like, you know, looked down upon or thought it was, you know, framed in a different way, because it used to just be like, good guys and bad guys would do that. And it was just like, there was no lines. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, Army Darkness is like, a, you know, I think a bit of a, a, a product of like the studio system at that time, but like, it's definitely... I think, um, you know, like ahead of its time in terms of like being able to blend tone, like I, you know, like I like considering how much of an asshole like Ash is throughout that whole, <laughs> whole movie and considering like literally how unlikable like he's allowed to be is just so good. Like, you know, and, and, and it would be really um, I mean, and I can tell you as a guy who pitches movies with with some weird tones. Uh, you know, like, like people don't like it. people, people are, are, are like, uh, in the room, like it's a really hard sell to, to get people to gamble on things that are not just like, I mean, people like to pretend that they like complex, complex characters, but they don't, they want like black hat, white hat, very clear, you know, things cause, cause they're scared, you know, they're, they're scared. There's not going to make sense or there's not going to be quality or people aren't going to track it or whatever. And this movie takes some huge risks and it's just, uh, you know, it's a testament to like how much, you know, uh, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi had worked together up until that point, like the trust there and the fact that they were able to, like, I don't know how they convinced us, um, you know, I guess Dino De Laurentiis was, was probably the guy who, who kind of like gave them as much rope as they had to hang themselves, you know? Um, but like, it, it's, it's pretty amazing what they got away with, especially on that budget. Can I ask why? And I, I definitely want to discuss Ash here in a second, but you know, now that you touched on that, I, I, I have to ask, why do you feel that that's the case that people, will say yes we want complex characters but we'll constantly bulk at wanting to bring them to life or bring them to the screen or agree to make movies with complex characters at their centers now that we're you know a generation beyond say um 
you know, The Sopranos, or we're uh, we're years out from Breaking Bad at this point, or, you know, any other, uh, you know, I could name numerous examples, but uh, obviously people respond to characters like that, so why is there such uh, reticence, do you think, towards having those characters in movies or television shows these days? I mean, I think just people are scared. Like, I think I think a lot of people who are in positions where, like, I mean, you know, everyone everyone seems to put a lot of emphasis on, like, oh, the directors have all the power. They make the creative decisions, or at least they're credited with them. But they don't really have, like, especially in, in a television system, like, the writers have, have more power. And to be honest, like, everybody in that system works for the network, you know? And so, and, and if you're making larger movies, you work for the studio. And uh, but if you're making independent movies, uh, you, you know, you tend to have a little bit more control. Uh, but even then you're someone's still paying those bills, you know, and so um, and if you're ever in a system where where you're being uh, we have creative executives or, or, or development people, people who are tasked with finding films, um, they're often like uh, they operate on, you know, they, they may have a mandate that says they're looking for certain content or whatever, but often they're kind of left to operate out of. Uh, you know, using their best judgment, you know, and then I think it leads to a lot of like fear of like, I don't want this movie to be bad because I'll lose my job or, or my status in the company will go down or I won't be able to get something else made or um, there's all sorts of reasons why people make decisions, but they want things to be as sure as they can be. And and so that leads to things getting simplified and, um, and broadened and, uh, and it leads to less, what I feel is kind of like less interesting material. Um, you know, like, like a, like classic example would be, like uh like we're, we're often um like we like in our last movie we had a uh like uh, the, the main characters are bad people like objectively <laughs> I mean, morally they're bad people and so uh so people you know like, like but when you pitch that idea um people are like well people aren't going to root for uh characters that are bad and that's like you know like a, uh, and and they, they equate that to being like well people don't like unlikable protagonists and that's like a very like, you know, page one of save the cat sort of feedback. Like it's not a real uh, concern because we are such, you know, like general audiences nowadays have seen so many films that like you can have antiheroes. We've had them since the 40s, you know, like like in mainstream films. And you you can, um, you know, be an outlaw and be the protagonist and you can and people will go on that journey as long as they have some way of identifying with them. And that can come in all sorts of forms that can come in like. Like, I mean, in our, in our last movie, it was very much about, like, uh, being able to identify with having a best friend, you know? And as long as people, we kept that guiding light, then we could take them in crazy places. And I think this does a similar thing, like, where you're very amused by Ash, and he kind of taps into that, like, wish fulfillment of your arrogance, you know? <laughs> and, it, and you'll follow him anywhere, because it's so fucking entertaining. And, and it's, like, a very clever, risky way to build a character with no, with no net, and then to see like in this story with this much personality, like they like it's it's a lot of like this could easily go wrong. Like what if Bruce Campbell's not as charming as, as Sam Raimi or you know thinks he is, you know, like or or whatever. Like there's all sorts of reasons why this may not work, and there's something about it that 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 does. And I and that's why it's so impressive to me that they're able to get it off the ground because it's you know it's it's tough to convince people who aren't going to have to go up there and do it that you know what you're doing. So how do you, when you pitch a movie like Tragedy Girls, how do you sort of allay those fears when you're talking to people who might be interested in making it? Um, well, I mean, there's different strategies. I mean, like we, uh, I tend to um, be as transparent as possible. Like, uh, like there's often, um, 
like my my biggest fear is like people um misunderstanding uh, like the, the the script or something and because often you send off a pdf and it's like you know 90 pages 100 pages whatever it is and people read it and they um and they may or may not you know they may you know they're going to go make a sandwich in the middle of it or they're going to read it in different chunks or they're going to read it on their phone or someone's going to ask them you know I mean, like there's all they're going to skim parts like you know there's all sorts of w- ways for them to misinterpret it and and you would have no idea because you would just they tell you they liked it or hated it or what they liked you know um and so uh, i tend to try and be as clear as possible with like references and stuff and I, sometimes i do like even table reads where they can come and see people like reading as the characters and helps them visualize it. Um, you know, uh, so, so, uh, I find that that sort of thing, uh, helps, you know, making visual presentations to try and keep it clear or referring to things, either in your movies or other movies that, that they would know that they can get excited about. Um, but it's just, you know, uh, it, it depends on, on the person you're dealing with, but you have to, it has to be highly personalized to, to whoever's going to, you know, um, provide, help you provide resources and kind of work with you to make the movie. What would Michaela and Sadie have made of Ash? Do you think? <laughs> I think they'd be pretty, uh, uh, you know, like uh, uh, amused uh, just because he's, you know, so selfish, and uh, and I think they'd find that like, you know, kind of um, uh, badass. Uh, um, but but at the same time, like uh, I think, uh, you know, um, Michaela might get a little bored. <laughs> it's eighty-one whole minutes, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in. Then can I ask then, you know, going back to Ash, do you find him not just looking at Army of Darkness, but the entire franchise? You know, can I ask, have you seen uh, Ash versus Evil Dead? I've only seen a little bit of the first season. I actually haven't gotten all the way through it. And not because I didn't enjoy it, but because I wanted like I started watching it and I was like, oh, this is I'm going to I'm going to enjoy this. And so I have been sort of banking it. And I was sad to see that it got canceled after after three. But uh well, um, but uh, now I have a good good accessibility to it on Netflix. It is. I um, I loved it. I, I do think after the pilot and the second episode of the first season, it sort of, uh, I don't know, it dipped a little bit in quality for me. But the second and third seasons are, they're the sequels that you've wanted to see for 20-some years. I mean, they're, they're just perfect. And even though... Um, even though it was canceled, apparently prematurely, I will say that it ends on kind of a perfect note. Um, I am sad that Bruce Campbell apparently is never playing Ash again, but I think uh, where we leave him is kind of perfect in a way. But that said, okay, so for all of the movies that there have been, you know, the three films and, you know, what you've seen of the television series so far, what do you think of Ash? Is he a hero? Is he an anti-hero? Is he a decent guy? Is he an asshole? You know, uh <laughs> what 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 is your ultimate feelings on on him as a character? Uh, I think when push comes to shove, he's he, he's a hero, but uh, uh, you know he's definitely deeply deeply flawed, and 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 it is that like hubris that that kind of I think is his weakness, um, and that's you know and there's something very appealing for that because he's like um, you know he's a, he's he's id a lot of the time you know like <laughs> and he can just kind of um, uh, you know like uh, steamroll his way through life. And and uh, and uh, it's interesting to kind of understand like that in the context of like seeing him be so like wimpy and you know getting trapped under bookshelves and stuff in that first Evil Dead movie, and then seeing him uh, you know like pull in a little more cockiness in the second one, and then he's just like a full on complete piece of shit by the by the top of the <laughs> one, and it's and it's it's like it's it's one of the funniest arcs of 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 um, you know uh, movie history. 
Yeah, he um, and yeah, I love that they carried that forward too. I think he just becomes kind of a worse human being as the franchise goes on in a weird way. He, you're right. He, I mean, he is kind of a decent guy. Then he's kind of rough around the edges, but still a good guy by the time of the second film. Then he's a complete cowardly dick in Army of Darkness who eventually finds his way. But yeah, he, I think he eventually ages into a complete jackass in Ash vs. Evil Dead. But he's still, he's still lovable. Like you can't help but like him. And I can't imagine, you know, many actors being able to pull that off. I think. I mean, who the hell else could play Ash uh, other than Bruce Campbell? No matter how talented, you know, a, a replacement could be, I, I can't see anybody else stepping into those shoes and that chainsaw, you know? Totally, yeah. It's uh, uh, it's definitely a, uh, uh, a, you know, iconic iconic role. Um, you know, and, and there are other, like, you know, cocky hero types, you know, like, uh, uh, like you know, like Kurt Russell and... Uh, um, a lot of different things, but like big trouble, little China comes to, comes to mind and there's something, uh, you know, but I don't think it works as well. Like I think, I think, uh, army of darkness is almost like, like peak blowhard, you know? Uh, and it's, uh, and it's ex- extremely amusing to see. Um, uh, and one other thing uh, that might be worth, uh, kind of pointing out is that like all three of the evil dead movies and army of darkness, uh, specifically has a, uh, they all have really good audio commentary tracks. Yeah. They're like, you know, like, and, and, I mean, I'm a big audio commentary guy, Same here. Um, you know, uh, and, and they, uh, more, I mean, I think the evil dead Two audio commentary track is one of the best ever made. Cause it's like Greg Nicotero, who's obviously gone on to greater things and like, you know, like, and, and like Bruce Campbell and like, you know, like Sam, it's like a lot of really cool, like, um, it, like you can kind of tell these guys are like old school friends and, and you get a sense of like that sort of, um, it's, I think it's very inspiring, especially to like young filmmakers. Like if you haven't seen it, or are seeing those audio commentary tracks, take a look at them because you'll learn a lot just about the craft of filmmaking. Um, but uh, but it, it's it's very inspiring to see that you can like actually like um, you know make filmmaking part of your life and enjoy it. And that's uh, uh, you know it's it's very cool to see um, you know them just kind of uh, riffing with each other and uh, um, making fun of each other. And, and I think it has a lot of humanity to it. I I, I wonder if people prize. Um audio commentaries the way they used to like 20 years ago you know i remember again coming up in the 90s and being a sort of a burgeoning film fan uh the idea that you could have a filmmaker sit and talk to you right alongside the movie as it plays and he could give you these great anecdotes and you know it could be like a 90 minute film school as it were you know uh, i remember that being such a novelty back then and uh you know obviously i there were so many laser discs i would read reviews of in fangoria and want to check them out and eventually when you know, I got a DVD player for the first time. Like that would be, I wouldn't even care about the movies so much as the commentaries to, uh, to listen to and, uh, you know, watch the film right alongside. And I don't know. I, it's, it's been a while, I think since I, I saw somebody comment on an audio commentary, you know, and say, you really need to check this out or this is super informative or my God, you know, what you'll learn here. And I don't know. Am I silly for thinking that? Or does it seem like that's, there's, sort of a lost art there. I, I, I gotta say, you know, I can't remember the last time I listened to an audio commentary that I, I didn't feel like it was just, you know, kind of a rehash of the film as it were with, you know, a couple of neat bits of trivia tossed about here and there, which admittedly used to happen back in the day too. I gotta say, uh, for being one of my favorite filmmakers, I have never enjoyed a, uh, a John Carpenter commentary. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, John Carpenter's a tough one. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, <laughs> he's been like John Ford, like, does not, you know, like, is, is you know, is like pulling teeth, getting him to talk about his own work. 
Um, He'll but, even raise uh, interesting thoughts and then not pursue them. <laughs> like, have you ever uh, listened to the audio commentary on vampires? Yeah, I have, yeah. That and bit it, where he talks like, about... On- Oh, totally. It's just like dead ends. Like, you're like, what's going on? He was like, you know, something like uh, I, I think early on with Cheryl Lee's character, he was like, you know, I've heard some people sort of gripe and raise the issue that there is some, uh, you know, th- this movie is sort of misogynistic by nature. And then he doesn't say anything else. And you're like, I, you know, me, like back in 99, I'm leaning forward like, OK, this is the part where you defend the film and just nothing. Nothing. He's just, you know, he's like, ah, hey, here's the thing. And, oh, oh, look, there's there's Jimmy Woods getting blown up. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, um, and, you know, which is crazy. I mean, I guess, you know, we can't demand too much more from John Carpenter after all the movies he's given us. But I, I've always wanted a great Carpenter commentary track. And I've, I feel like as a fan, I've never really gotten one. Totally. I mean, it's very filmmaker dependent. Like I find that some some people like really pride themselves on it. Like, uh, um, but but I, I think that uh, um, uh, the the these this particular set is 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 uh, one, among the best or among my favorite anyway. But yeah, again, I, I don't know who or how would people would access those other than just finding a DVD. But uh, but I, I think like you know even like Shutter I think is starting to do some audio commentary stuff for some of their original stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I um, these days it is kind of an, a lost art. Yeah, and I think how much do you think streaming plays into that? The idea that you know bonus features aren't really you know um, uh, really held in high regard. It doesn't seem like either by you know uh, current fans, you know, or people who would watch movies, you know, maybe casually, or even uh, I would I don't want to say the filmmakers, but at least the people who are authoring the discs and putting them out there into the world. It seems like. Uh, you know, I remember back in the early aughts during the DVD boom, you, you would have two and three disc editions of movies. And just it, it seems like there was sort of a race to see how many uh, how many bonus features could be crammed onto a single disc and how it would stand on the shelves alongside the other movies and look so much more impressive for all the content that was going to be on there. Over three hours of content, over four hours of content, over 17 hours of content, you know. And now it's just kind of like it feels like we're lucky if we get a damn trailer. Yeah. No, t- totally. And I, I mean, I, I, I definitely get that from like a cost perspective and stuff like that. But like, I know a lot of filmmakers are starting to put up like behind the scenes on like YouTube and stuff like that. Um, you know, so, so like, I, you know, I, there's always footage to be found, I think, um, with, with kind of newer films. But, but yeah, it is a bit of a lost, um, uh, a lost art. And uh, I mean, I, I was never, I mean, I never really dug too deep into uh, Filmstruck extras, but, but I, I think there is. Uh, I think streamers are starting to kind of realize that there are some, there is a bit of a market for that, and, and hopefully we'll see more of it in the future. I was just getting ready to subscribe to Filmstruck. I swear, I swear I was, and then it was announced that was it late November they're going to uh, pull the plug unless the uh, I don't know unless they decide against it because of I guess Spielberg and numerous other filmmakers trying to. Uh, you know, throw their hat in and save it. I'm, I'm I'm curious to see if that'll actually work because I do think it sounded like a hell of a resource. I just, it was one that I hadn't got around to checking out yet. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's any day now they're pulling the plug, but yeah, I mean, unless, I mean, it must be like the overall, you know, model of it, like the license fees are too high or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there is, you know, I, I, it, it depresses me that there's not enough of a market to keep something as cool as that going. Yeah, no doubt. And, I don't know. I, I I I do miss the days. I, I I'm starting to feel like an old man at 37. But uh, I miss you know being in college and 
being able to walk into a video store or a video rental store and seeing you know just scads of new movies you know and loads of new dvds and seeing you know all those bonus features and it, it seemed like for a time everybody was a film buff you know and uh, i don't know and i gotta say you know out of all the franchises that probably benefited from that that era that that sort of dvd boom evil dead was right up there how many editions of army of darkness do you think have been put out in the last 20 years how many of evil dead 2 how many of evil dead yeah, well, I mean, hey, I mean, these were some of the big, like, like Anchor Bay, like, I think Evil Dead put put them on the map, you know, like, and they went on to be such, uh, you know, kind of important, like, in the life of horror and genre in general. Uh, and I remember being so stoked when I, you know, like, tracked down that, like, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, Anchor Bay releases, you know, or whatever, and the, like, elite entertainment authored uh, DVDs, you know, that were well made that had those comedy tracks and like whatever footage they could hunt down and tell us any for cheap and uh, you know like it was um it, it was cool but like uh you know then there's like what the bootleg edition and like the screwhead edition and the boomstick edition or whatever the hell like <laughs> there's like literally like the book of the dead edition yeah yeah and that one's like you know classic and yeah it's uh it's um i mean yeah i mean i would ballpark you know at least at least 15 of each no doubt no doubt and and I probably bought every damn one of those, I would think, uh, over the years. And tried to get Bruce Campbell to sign as many of them as possible throughout all the conventions I've hit over the years. <laughs> now, um, so, you know, looking back to the movie, Army of Darkness, watching it again uh, for this chat, I noticed, you know, the, the movie opens and we see Ash being marched to the King's Castle as a slave. And then we get a recap of the previous films. Uh, or at least the previous film. We can debate as to whether or not Evil Dead 2 is a sequel or a remake here in just a minute. But, you know, we we see in this movie, Bridget Fonda now is Linda, uh, which is kind of amazing in its own right that she popped up for all of eight seconds in this film as Linda. But uh, And then we get sort of a somewhat different set of events when the medieval folk first discover Ash. And it, again, in the first three or four minutes of this movie, it, it kind of serves as a reminder that the continuity among the various films in the franchise has never really been that strong. And uh, I don't know, how do you feel about that? I mean, some of the comics later, and it'd be fun to talk about those here in a minute, but they uh, sort of pose the idea that there are multiple realities to be dealt with, you know, in the Evil Dead universe. And I, I wonder, watching the Evil Dead trilogy, if we're not seeing... Again, we talked about it just a minute ago, you know, how Ash can be a decent guy in one movie and then, you know, a little rougher hewn in the next and then a complete jackass in the next. I'm wondering if we're not watching a single character, but we're watching multiple versions of him uh, in various timelines in a way. Because otherwise, I don't know how you explain all these movies happening in the same continuity. Or can you as a fan? Please tell me. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I think as a fan, I don't really give a shit. Like, I think, it, I think I'm just kind of with it. Like... You know, like, and nor as a filmmaker, like, I think that those continuity things are, are, are kind of minor. I mean, considering that the guy ages, you know, almost 15 years, <laughs> like, like, you know, or whatever, or maybe 12 years, um, uh, you know, like, it's, it's, a, it's a significant uh, uh, thing. He's much more ripped in, the, in Army of Darkness than he, than he is in the first Evil Dead. Um, but that's because everyone was 20, you know, like, and it's like, uh, it's, uh, uh, so, like, I mean, I think that there is um, a, a version of this where you could cr you could like splice together all three movies, which is something I think they bring up on one of the audio commentary tracks. Can't remember, but but they, um, I bet you could do that, and it, and it would just be like, you know, those those um, continuity errors would smack you in the face, but but I, I think it would flow. <laughs> yeah, I I wonder how you would. I, I it would almost have to be. I would imagine like you would play the entire 
first Evil Dead movie, and then the entity crashes into Ash and takes him out into the woods, and then you would have to cut about, what, 20 minutes, 25 minutes in the Evil Dead 2 with uh, him up in the trees and then getting, like, you know, bopped around and then, you know, carry on from there, and then you would have to cut from, what, him falling out of the sky at the end of Evil Dead 2 to him landing in Army of Darkness and cut out everything in between in both movies? Uh, yeah, I think you would definitely have to cut out... Uh... Uh, the flashback stuff uh, at the beginning of Army of Darkness, and and then obviously the the end of of like Kill the Beast, you know, or Slay the Beast, or whatever it is, um, <laughs> uh, at the end of uh, of uh, you know that that and and it's kind of like they played it so much darker, you know, like such so much more real, like it's it, it's like uh, like desaturated, like uh, or or something weird with the processing, uh, where where everything looks very um, uh, kind of like high contrast at the end of Evil Dead Two, and and if you just cut into uh, you know, ash falling out of the sky or whatever. I think that would be. Uh, um, I think it would flow. It would just be like you know, there'd be some pretty significant jumps. That would be one fantastic four-hour movie, though. Oh yeah, it would be. It'd be. It'd be dope. I'd watch the hell out of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in that case, then I because this has always been a debate. I think, and I still don't know which side I fall on. I'm curious, uh, what you think. Like, is Evil Dead Two a sequel or is it a remake? Oh, um, I, I definitely think it's a sequel. Um, I, I just think that they uh, ended up stylizing it, uh, stylizing the, um, like, realizing that so little plot transpired in the first Evil Dead that they, you know, like, as soon as you eliminate those char- those other characters who were really just there to get killed anyway, like Scott and, um, uh, yeah, you know, all the other, uh, all the, the women and, uh, like, they, I mean, what, there's five characters in the, in the first movie, and it's like, it's like, um, you know, like you, you can cut out like Cheryl and Shelley and, you know, like, like and Scott and, and just go with um, uh, with Linda and, and Ash and, and it still makes as much sense. Like they still he still ends up being the only survivor, you know, like, um, you know, so so I think that there's a, um, uh, you know, it's definitely a um, uh, a I, I think a, a sequel, but it's, um, uh, you know, there's there's a strong case uh, to, to be made that you don't even need to watch the first one. Even though, but I think that movie is like pretty brilliant for a lot of reasons that are, um, you know, of their own uh, uh, merit. Oh, absolutely! I I love the first movie, and especially after reading, uh, oh, Bruce Campbell's first book was it? Uh, if Chins Could Kill, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he talked about all of the little uh, DIY filmmaking stuff that Ramey and company would do on set, like you know, right down to, uh, you know, they didn't have like a dolly track, so he would. Uh, use like a sawhorse greased with Vaseline or something and, you know, plant the camera on it and glide it back and forth that way. You know, just stuff like that is amazing. And then you watch the movie and you realize it doesn't really matter what they were doing right behind the camera, you know, so long as they were able to get away with what they did and they put it on screen. And that movie looks still so fucking cool. And, you know, the, the, the stuff that they did in editing too with the, uh, you know, like the camera passing in front of the beams, you know, overhead and each one of them, has its own sound effect. That sort of vroom, vroom, vroom. Like, you know, just, I, I, it's so much fun watching that original movie, even though it's, uh, it is kind of grim at points. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, the, but all three of these movies, Army of Darkness, especially like, uh, like are incredibly innovative, like technically, like just uh, like from like a camera lens, like, uh, like camera movement and placement perspective, like incredibly technical. Like, and a lot of people don't realize that like the, um, like I think Peter Deming shot the the Evil Dead Two, but uh, but the guy who, sh- who was the cinematographer on uh, or the DP on, on Army of Darkness was uh, uh, Bill Pope, 
who, who is one of the greatest living cinematographers. Like he shot the matrix, you know, oh, yeah. like it's oh, yeah. Scott Pilgrim versus the world, like, an, and, and just a guy that, that, you know, is incredibly, um, technical. And, uh, and so to kind of see like those, uh, you know, kind of like, um, just very creative, um, uh, uh, cinematographic, uh, uh, things like even things that got, uh, you know, that are, uh, really uh downplayed like they're uh, you know putting like anamorphic lenses on the wrong way and stuff like that and they're like seeing the <laughs> image stretched and like you know different moving at different speeds and um like you know uh, like a lot of like reverse motion stuff like sam raimi's pretty famous for and like running uh you know different cameras at different frame rates and and you know playing back like ash and fast motion like there's a lot of really um like stuff that was it, it, much more difficult to do back with with 35 millimeter film uh and uh and 60 millimeter film that uh you know is is like second nature to these guys and like you know there's all sorts of um really creative stuff just technically um and i mean especially in that first movie like there's there's shots in that movie that would take like you know a whole day to set up you know especially with with only three people working or whatever and it's and it's uh you know they get the type of shots that you get when all you have is just time and that, as a result, like the movie ends up just looking really uh, groundbreaking. Whereas nowadays, uh, you know, I mean, like if you properly schedule an independent film, like you'd have maybe twelve days to shoot something, and you're just cramming everything in, um, and and you end up with with some pretty half-assed shots. Whereas like there's uh, this has almost the opposite aesthetic, where you you have in, incredibly creative things that you would only get if you just had time and one actor. <laughs> And I, I gotta say too, I, I I love how inventive he was, and I love how playful he was too. You know, in those early movies. But it also seems like he, I I, I miss older Raimi, and uh, it felt like you know when he did Drag Me to Hell that he was sort of um, kind of going back to the old days, and you know, sort of applying uh, you know the the sort of budget that he could command and wield at that point in his career. Uh, but do it in service of the types of, uh, you know, fun horror comedy action movies he did early in his career. And, uh, but that's been nearly a decade ago now. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I miss, uh, hell, what, what was his last movie at this point? It wasn't that Oz movie, was it? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I, I, I know he directed, the, uh, the Oz the Great and Powerful or whatever. Um, yeah, he, uh, he also directed the pilot for, uh, for uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead, which was great, um, and yeah, but yeah, I mean it. Uh, you know, like uh, I, um, but yeah, I think it was um, um, must have been the Oscar and powerful. Holy shit! That was yeah, that was a half a decade ago. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's it's five years ago. But but I mean, but he has been he has he has been doing some TV and stuff. I think too, um, and also producing a lot. Like like uh, I know Ghost House is pretty pretty productive. Um, just in terms of development, uh, which is like uh, him and Rob Tapper's company, uh, like they did Dubberith, and um, and uh, you know, uh, I think there's a sequel to that coming out soon, and um, you know, and they obviously were the were the brush company on the series, which went three seasons. So, I mean, it's not like he's you know, um, he's not like he's you know sitting at home uh, you know watching the paint dry. I think he's he's out there uh, doing a lot of producing, but I think once you get to a certain level, like, like his name is, is worth a lot on, on other people's projects. And, um, you know, I mean, he's a guy who has a family and, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he slows down like a lot of other directors for, for very similar reasons. Very true. Very true. And yeah, and I'm not knocking him at all. I just, uh, I don't know. It's the selfish fan in me that kind of, uh, you know, kind of wants, yeah, yeah. you know, just more of the same, I guess, which, uh, you know, 
is uh, maybe kind of silly, but at the same time, like I, again, when I saw Dragman to Hell, I was like, oh, great. You know, he's back. And then uh, and then I saw Oz the Great and Powerful. And then I was like, well, maybe not. I think Oz the Great and Powerful is almost a remake of Army of Darkness in some ways. Because it's like, it has a lot of similar elements. Like James Franco's character is kind of a charlatan. And, you know, like they go into this other world and has to like become a hero that they're pretending to be, you know? Like, and it's, it's kind of, uh, like there's a lot of parallels, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that um, make these kind of, that kind of, uh, interesting companion pieces. Damn it. I'm going to have to go and rewatch it now. I, that is the one movie of his I've only seen once and I guess I'm going to have to, uh, to reconsider it. Okay. Very cool. I will give that a shot then because I, uh, I didn't hate it when I saw it. I just, um, I guess my expectations were super high for it because I'm a huge Wizard of Oz fan. I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. And so I don't know what I was expecting out of it, but it wasn't what I ultimately got. But maybe with my expectations in check, I need to, uh, I need to give it another shot. Can I ask, have you given a shot to any of the Army of Darkness comic books, the many uh, sort of spinoffs that it's gotten on the page since, uh, God, I think 2003 is when they started up. Uh, no, actually, I, I haven't. I, I mean, I I, uh, I was actually working in a comic shop uh, on and off, uh, kind of leading up to about that time, and I, I knew that they were coming out, but I never really got into them because I was kind of in the middle of university. Um, but uh, uh, and then haven't really gotten too much back into it. But uh, I, I've heard kind of mixed reviews. Um, have, have you uh, read any of the series? I, you know, I did. I started out when they first came out back in two thousand three, and I wasn't terribly impressed. I. Uh, the artwork was a bit too cartoony. The storytelling was a bit of a, a rehash. And uh, as a result, I just, I never kind of paid them much attention. As much as I love the movie, the comics sort of uh, passed me by. And then uh, about a year ago, I picked up the uh, the Steve Niles written reboot from a few years back. And um, I guess it sort of disregards the continuity of all the, all the comics that had come before it. And it starts again with... Uh, Ash traveling back to uh, medieval times. Uh, Sheila is now kind of this warrior woman who can wield a sword and take care of herself. And they fall in love and get married and, you know, battle all sorts of monsters together. And it's just a blast, you know. And then from there on, uh, I think there was Ash in Space and Furious Road, which featured uh, sort of an aging Ash in a post-apocalyptic Mad Max-style world. And uh, they even did, a, I guess, the most recent reboot, which even reboots the... Uh, the Steve Niles uh, story is, uh, I think it was Ash versus Army of Darkness, which saw Ash as a, uh, a substitute teacher fighting the evil dead in a high school. And Oh, and there was a recent miniseries where he met Kiss, too. I didn't read that one, but uh, I don't know. I went back. I picked up a couple of the, uh, the omnibus collections. I think there are three of them. I picked up the first two, and uh, uh, there's a really great John Bolton-painted uh, comic book adaptation of the movie collected there, and then... Uh, there's a lot of the early stuff. Some of it is actually pretty good, and some of it's a little dodgy. But it's, uh, I would say to fans out there, it's definitely worth, uh, you know, just giving a look. Because, you know, <laughs> some of the stories are pretty fun. I mean, in one of them, Ash fights the reanimator. Uh, in another, he teams up with Vampirella and Hack Slash. And uh, there's a storyline where he even discovers an alternate universe version of himself who is uh, female. Uh, which is kind of interesting. But, uh but I, I would love to know the cool. story behind the comics, though, and how they came to be, because apparently there is a uh, I was at a convention some years back and Bruce Campbell was there and I just heard this announcement made. Hey, Bruce is here. He's going to be signing in a minute just to let you know, yada, yada, blah, 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 cost of the autograph and photo or what the hell ever. And one of the things that they made a point of saying is that he 
either would not or could not sign any of the Dynamite comic books. Uh, so I don't know if there's like a rights issue there or or what the deal is. But nevertheless, um, I don't know. They're they're worth checking out. I know in February they are doing a. Uh, Above a Hotep Army of Darkness crossover. So imagine a comic book cover with uh, Bruce Campbell as Ash facing off with Bruce Campbell as uh, Elvis, and I just I'm there. That's a copy bot. Cool. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean I, I'm not sure what the what the rights issue could could be. I mean sometimes people like you know draw a line in the sand like creatively or endorsement wise, but they don't they don't do it. But um, that seems unlike unlike uh, what I know of Bruce Campbell. So. Uh, yeah, I'd be curious to know what happened there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, sir, I think we are just about nearing the end of our chat here. Uh, can I ask, do you have any sort of final parting thoughts on Army of Darkness? No, I mean, I, I would say, uh, uh, you know, this this movie has been very important to me and it's been kind of one of the great, like, um, uh, like unifying things that, that I can, like, like I think it's a, it's, it's a good um, movie to show people who are casual horror fans or, or, or people who are just get, or, or who are maybe not horror fans that you are trying to get into horror. Like, I think it's very accessible and because it's like, it's just, it's, um, you know, like it, a lot of people who, who stumble into like Tucker and Dale versus evil and stuff like that, like I think would enjoy this sort of movie. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we're getting to the point now where it's, where it's, even though like there's TV series and, um, you know, the movie's been a lot, around for a while and is considered a classic by, by many, many people. I think there's still um, quite a few, like, um, you know, casual movie fans who, who should be shown this. And a lot of, like, younger people, I think, um, you know, parents out there, you know, I think you should show your kids Army of Darkness. That's, that's my, my advice. Yeah, and it is, it is a great gateway horror film, damn it. You know, it is, yeah. it is fun. It is kind of perfect. Uh, you mentioned earlier, I don't think it ever occurred to me, but the movie is rated R. Uh, yeah, it was when uh, when when it came out. Uh, I think it was radar. I, I'm not uh, I'm not sure if that still stands up. Like I know, uh, like I mean, I grew up in Canada, and a lot of um, a lot of the like like kind of softer R movies um, got put into like what you call like a 14A category up there, which is functionally PG-13. Um, but, but like down here in the States, I think it still is technically R. Um, I mean, I think on, uh, even if you look it up on IMDb, I'm sure it still says R, um, because you know, it's, it's still, you know, kind of a, kind of a violent flick. It is. I'm trying to think though, by today's standards, if it would be R, if, uh, because I can't think there, there is no, at least in the, 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 uh, theatrical cut, uh, there's no nudity that I can think of, no horrible bloodshed. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some, there's some there's a lot of like, um, you know, pretty cartoony violence in it. Um, but, uh, you know, um, but, but, you know, he does like cut a stand off of the chainsaw. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's some, there's some fight there. <laughs> Very true. All right. Well, Mr. McIntyre, thank you so much for being on the show and for choosing such a great film to talk about. Before we go, I'll ask, uh, where can folks find you at online and, uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Oh uh, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, uh, on Twitter at, at TMAC film. Um, I'm one of the easiest people in the world to find. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we'll work on a couple different, uh, things and we'll hopefully be, uh, shooting a new feature next year. And we're also working on a television series. Oh, wow. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll, uh, I'll keep you guys posted about that. Uh, and ho hopefully have more specific announcements, uh, um, in the near future. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you again, sir. I really appreciate it. 
Awesome. Thanks so much, man. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, tell your friends about us, and find us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I am at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Great. Oh, yeah. Get the fuck out of my face.